Yes, sir. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Blanks? You're missing a blank? Is that it? 4B. Oh, yeah, I totally flew. 4B. Covenant. The Lord revealed him as covenant. Yeah, I, I, this was way too much psalm to bite off on a communion Sunday. I realized that halfway through. Um, Lee's like, amen, amen. I don't need an amen, Lee. Thanks. <laughs> Just trying to be agreeable. There you go. Preach it. Okay, Micah 7, 8 through 9. It's wonderful. If you go to desiringgod.org, desiringgod.org, John Piper's little article on what he calls gutsy guilt, and it's, it's phenomenal. I find that to be a very encouraging passage. I got that passage written down inside my Bible. Um, how, to, how to be bold with the right attitude, even as we've messed up, um, even as we've sinned. How, how, you know. um, and uh, yeah, Micah 7, 8 is fantastic. Fantastic. Other questions or thoughts? Yes, Dawn. Extol, praise. Um, announce, extol would be extol, to repeat, told, to say. Um, it's to publicly announce or celebrate. Anyone want to look it up in a dictionary? Extol, that would be my best guess. Extol. Um, it's, it's what you pay when you leave the highway. Extol. <laughs> But um, bang. Okay, is someone looking up extol? Okay, what do we got? The publicly praise, publicly um, celebrate. That'll be my my definition. To praise enthusiastically. Okay, extol. There's some deep questions. This is good stuff. Any other blanks people need? Because I know I've missed half the blanks. Okay. Anything else? Psalm 25. Going once, going twice. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. That's not a question. That's a declaration. Actually, actually, we had this time with Abner. We're driving back from the Jordan Creek, and he's like, "Dad, mommy, I have a question." Okay. Well, I was dreaming about this tree last night, and there is. It just goes on. Like Abner, that's not a that's not a question. That's a that's a statement. Daddy, I got a statement. <laughs> yes, Alyssa. You need all the blanks. Okay. Um, wow. Okay. Adam's got you covered. Um, okay. Any? Any? Yes, Candy. That should be Psalm eighty-six. Yes. Yes. There's 86. There's not 86 chapters in Exodus. Um, so no, that'd be... I think Psalms is the only book with that many chapters. So that's why I left it off. I figured, I figured you'd know. Right, 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 right. Isaiah, or Isaiah, depending on how you say it, it's got 66 chapters. I think that's number two. Um, could be wrong. Anything else? So basically what I'm getting is I need to say the blanks more clearly. Um, fair enough. Yes. Extol has. Where's that? Number two. See, spell check didn't catch that though. So I don't know why. There must be a word. Oh well, then it's fine. It's American. Do you spell color with a U? 
Privacy or privacy? Aluminium or aluminum? That's that's the way the British pronounce. That's how they say it. Aluminium. Okay. Okay, we got grammar questions. Good times. Good times. Okay. Um, anything else? Okay, any open questions at all? Before we, we can actually get to the sheet on the Holy Spirit, but any general questions at all? Anything, your Bible reading, anything that's going on? You got anything you want to throw out? Yes. I figured from the hand, you don't... Okay, sorry. <laughs> Just giving you a hard time after extol. Okay, okay. Yes. 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 That is a great question. And it kind of piggybacks on what we did last week, so let's try to take a few minutes. One of the points I was trying to make here is there are multiple covenants in the Old Testament. Quick quiz, how many covenants can you name? that are specifically identified. There's more than two. You can name two. Okay, they are? Yep, what else? What? Edenic. That's implied, although there is one reference to it in later passage. There's no... That's that's one of the ones, covenant guys, the the Edenic, the covenant made in Eden. Now, in in that... um, No, no. I got, I got the reference. I, there is a reference to that, which is where this is one of the debated covenants. Um, this is the questionable ones. Clearly, God gives Adam and Eve commands. And to those who hold that this is a covenant, the covenant would be bilateral. You do this, I do this. If you will obey, then you will have everlasting life. That would be the assumed covenant. Whether or not it's formally a covenant, that certainly does seem to be the, the situation. Um, I got to find the reference to that being a covenant because even though it's um, it's it's more oblique. Hold on, um, it's more. Uh, hold on, let me find it. I got it in my little Bible study notes here. What else? We got Abraham. We've got Moses. We got Noah. Yes, we got Noah. What? Oh, you each got one. You got <laughs> Alyssa. You got one. What is one? Davidic, Second Samuel. God makes an everlasting covenant with David for um, the, the, his, um, yes, and what's yours? He made a covenant with Jacob. I think he confirmed the covenant with Jacob. He changed Jacob's name, but I think it's a confirmation of the covenant blessings of Abraham to Jacob. I don't think it's a separate covenant as much as a passing on of the covenant. It moves along down that line. It's still the same covenant blessings. There's one more you guys, everyone misses. My f- Levitical, where's that? No. <laughs> no. Um, hold on. It's in numbers. That's why I named my son Zadok. It ties into that. Hold on, let me, let me find um, Covenant of... Here it is. I, Hosea 6-7 says this. This is where uh, they get... Um, they get a covenant of works in the garden. 6-7. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. They dealt faithlessly with me. So, 
What? That was the, that was the proposed Edenic in Eden covenant. It's not, it doesn't prove there's a covenant, you know what I'm saying? But that's the textual support for the notion that it's a covenant. Um, I haven't said it enough to say exhaustively. It doesn't appear to be a covenant in Genesis 1 and 2. But that would be the textual support for the people that want to argue about the, uh, the covenant of works in the garden. Old te- no, but it's announced in, come on, Jeremiah. Yes, thank you. So there's all types of covenants. Let's go, let's go check out the, old, the new covenant in Jeremiah 34, 33 or 34, or 31. It's 30 something. Hold on. 31, thank you. Well, see, Ezekiel 34 is the parallel new covenant passage. I always get those messed up. Um, okay. Because here's, here's what you basically, so to get back to the question, Elsa's question is, how do we know what promises in the Old Testament apply to us? Um, you can break down promises as falling under various covenants. And then you've got to ask yourself if you're included in that covenant, if you're a participant of that covenant. So the greatest covenant in the Old Testament is the New Covenant. Um, and that's in Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31. 31, 31. This is one of those, by the way, this is one of those passages I would bookmark and be aware of. There's some key passages in the Old Testament. The promise of the new covenant, Hebrews chapter 8 quotes this passage extensively. When Jesus at communion, the installation of communion says, this is the covenant of my blood. He's referencing this. Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers in the day when I took them out of the land to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That's Which covenant is he referencing there? Mosaic. You can reference it as a mosaic or the Sinaitic or the law. Any of those would be fine. Mosaic, covenant, and law. Um, not like that. This is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law within them. I'll write it on their own hearts. I'll be their God. They'll be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I'll forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Now there's the, old, the new covenant in the Old Testament. And you've got... Are we... Absolutely. So you need some, so to know that the question is then by what warrant do we get this? The New Testament gives us the warrant when Jeremiah applies it to us. That's part of the blessings that Paul talks about in Romans 10 and 11, where Israel's grafted out and we're grafted in. This is the covenant we're grafted into. Um, yes, Jonah. That's Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. So go over to Numbers. This is, the, by the way, there's the whole debate between dispensationalists and covenant theology. The forgotten covenant of covenant theology is the priestly covenant, I tell you. I think, at least, that's my personal opinion. Um, numbers, in a very uh, salacious account or story, scandalous story, um, of Phineas piercing through an immoral couple in the act. Um, that's where I got inspiration from naming my son. Um, 25. No, it's a, it's a crazy cool story. Um, it's, it's heavy duty. By the way, this... Oh, there's so much intertext. Oh, sorry, let me drink some coffee and I'll talk even faster. Hold on. Mm. Ah, let's just read the account. 
Numbers 25. Now, if you remember, Balaam is like prophet for hire, and he gets hired by Balak. And Balak says, curse Israel. And Balaam tries, and he can't. He can only bless Israel. And Balak says, well, what am I paying you for? And Balaam says, tell you what, here's some advice. If you can just get Israel to sin, their own God will discipline them. Balaam, Balak says, okay. And he sends down his, his cult prostitutes, and they basically have a mass orgy and idol worship in the Valley of Peor. Paul mentions this in uh, 1 Corinthians 10, about some of the things we're supposed to learn from. So, verse, um, tw- chapter 25, starting in verse 1, while Israel was in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to sacrifice of their gods, uh, to, to the sacrifices of their gods. The people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal at Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, take the chief of the people and hang. By the way, look at the footnote. That's My ESV at least says a footnote. Impale. That's a better reading. You'll see why in a minute. Impale. Pierce. Um, pierce them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. That's where Phineas gets his idea from. You wonder, why did Phineas think to run through the couple? Because that's what it says in pale. That's why he does what he does. I don't know why the SV translates it hang. Um, I think the question is when you impale somebody, you sort of are stuck on the spike. I think that's the picture. Which, by the way, cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree, which then gets picked up in Galatians. Yes, the curse motif of crucifixion is in seed form here. Um, by the way, the Bible grabs a hold of this because Deuteronomy is going to reference this. Whenever you need to hang someone on a tree, make sure you take them down by sunrise because cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree, which then Galatians grabs. It all starts here. You wouldn't have thought that too. But the crucifixion thread, here it is. Okay, sorry. Just I love how the Bible hangs together. Sorry. Um, and uh, Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal at Peor. And behold, one of the people of Israel came, and this guy's bold as brass. Here's Moses and the Levites, and they're pulling their hair out, and they're going, whoa. And one of the uh, people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them. The man of Israel and the woman through the belly. Thus the plague of the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. So... This couple walk by, Moses right past the tent of meeting, get in the tent to do their thing. Phineas picks up a spear and impales them, um, presumably in the act, because uh, he only had one spear. And the Lord said to Moses, Phineas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, And it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. There's the priestly covenant. And that usually is the one that gets overlooked. And the question then becomes, how does a priest after the order of Melchizedek fulfill promises of this specificity made to Phinehas? 
Because the classic covenant answer to these things, well, all the, all the promises of God are yes in Jesus. Well, of course they are. How? That's the question. How? How does a priest of the order of Melchizedek fulfill a promise to this guy that his descendants, and he's of the tribe of Levi, will have a perpetual priesthood? Okay, glad you asked. Um, one of Phineas's descendants is Zadok the priest, and he shows up at the time of David. And there's two high priests. There's Abiathar and there is Zadok, which means righteous. And when David is expelled from Jerusalem at Absalom, his son's coup, you know that story, Absalom mounts a coup and David flees, who meets him at the edge of the city with the Ark of the Covenant, but Zadok, or Zadok, or however you want to pronounce it, um, Zadok. And, and he shows covenant loyalty to David. He's basically saying, wherever the Lord's anointed goes, the ark's going with him. And David turns him back and says, no, this is from the Lord. And if the Lord restores me, I'll be back. If not, I'm, I, this won't help. Go back. And so after that, um, so, da- so Zadok shows covenant loyalty to David. Then as David's dying on his deathbed and they're getting ready to, um, to crown um, Solomon as king, Adonijah, his brother, mounts a little coup. He's going to be king. And Abiathar is the one who anoints him as king. So there's two high priests. Abiathar and Joab are putting forward Adonijah to become king. And um, Nathan hears about this. Bathsheba hears about it. And Zadok comes and consecrates Solomon and anoints him king. And there is almost going to be a civil war, except Adonijah backs down. And there isn't. And Solomon becomes king. From then on, Abiathar is not high priest anymore. He chose the wrong side. He backed a loser. And he didn't show covenant faithfulness to David and his line. But in their defense, no, his line, he did. Adonijah's older than Solomon. Yeah. So, I mean, this, but God had said. God had said. So, from then on, Zadok gets singled out. Then go to Ezekiel. This is a roundabout way of answering your question. I'm sorry, Elsa, but we'll, we'll get there. We'll get, I haven't forgotten. The end of Ezekiel. Um, I'll need my iPad for the references on this one. Uh-huh. Priestly covenant. Oh, I know it's easy enough to just type in Zadok. Yeah, start start in 48, yeah. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. There we go. Well, it starts in 40, 40, 46. Let's go to Ezekiel 40. Start in 44. And what we're describing here is a temple of the restored... Um, well, actually, go back to 39 to set the context what we're looking at here. So God makes a promise to Phineas of a perpetual priesthood serving for the Lord, and then that promise gets passed along to his, his, great, his great-grandson or whatever, Zadok, Zadok, his descendant. Then in Ezekiel, the end of um, 39, certain 25, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel, and I'll be jealous for my holy name. They shall forget their shame and all the treachery that they have practiced against me when they dwell securely in their land with none to make them afraid. 
when I've brought them back from the peoples and gathered them from their enemies' lands, and though they have and through them have vindicated my holiness in the sight of many nations, then they shall know that I am the Lord their God, because I sent them into exile among the nations, and then assembled them into their own land. I will leave none of them remaining among the nations anymore. I will not hide my face any more from them when I pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. And then, for the rest of the book, Ezekiel gets a vision of a temple in Jerusalem. The 25th year of our exile, the beginning of the year on the 10th day of the month, the 14th year after the city was struck, on that very day the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me to the city in visions of God. He brought me to the land of Israel, because remember, Ezekiel's in Babylon by the Kabar River. He takes a vision. Um, In visions of God, he sat me down on a very high mountain on which was a structure like a city to the south, and he brought me there. Behold, there was a man whose appearance was like bronze, with a linen cord and a measuring reed in his hand. Remember when we were in Zechariah and the vision of the man with the measuring line? Same concept, the rebuilding of Jerusalem, rebuilding of the temple. And then as we move along, we get descriptions of the rebuilt Jerusalem with the gates being rebuilt starting in 5, the outer court in 15, the north gate in 20, the south gate in 24, the inner court. Then we get to the chamber for the priests. So in this rebuilt Jerusalem, and if you remember from Zechariah, this hasn't happened yet. This is happening after the battle of Armageddon. This is, this is the millennial kingdom. We get to 44. On the outside of the inner gate, there are two chambers in the inner court, one at the side of the north gate facing south, the other at the side to the south gate facing north. And he said to me, this chamber that faces south is for the priests who have charge of the temple. And the chambers that face north is for the priests who have charge of the altar. These are the sons of Zadok, who alone among the sons of Levi may come near the Lord to minister him. The covenant God made with Phinehas back in Numbers is fulfilled as only his descendants are to come close and minister before the Lord in the millennial temple. And they get mentioned about four or five more times in Ezekiel, but that's the first one. So they get referenced also in 43.19, 44.15, and 48.11. Um, so that's the, that's the covenant. So sure, all the covenants of God are yes in Jesus. How? Jesus will set up a kingdom where Phineas's descendants will have a perpetual priesthood serving for the Lord. That's my answer. I'm wide open to others, um, but but that's that's the question. How does a Melchizedekian priest fulfill the covenant? He does so by setting up a situation, I think, where this can happen. Um, there are other views, fair enough, um, but that's my understanding. So anyway, we've named the covenants. We've got Abrahamic, we've got Noah, we've got Moses, we've got David, we've got Phineas, we've got the new covenant. We've got maybe a covenant in Eden, so we got six to seven covenants in the Old Testament. Back to Elsa's question, how do you know if promises in the Bible relate to you? In the Old Testament specifically. The first thing I'd ask is, is it under one of those covenants? Because um, sometimes God just makes promises to an individual. Um, like he tells Saul, he's going to give his spirit to him and make him a new man. I wouldn't name and claim that one. <laughs> Your name's not Saul, right? Um, and there's a danger in this because you know, there's a joke. The person, you know, the people who sort of do their Bible reading for the day sort of flip through and they find their verse for the day. That's great until you get the verse and Judas hung himself. It's my verse for the day. I'll, I'll try this again. Get to Jesus. What you do, do quickly. Go do likewise. <laughs> you know, and you, know, you, can, you can quickly run into the problems when you just sort of you know, Rolodex your Bible and find your magic verse. So the first question would just be, is this in the narrative, is this to a specific person? Who's the recipient initially of this promise and on what basis? So that'd be the first question I want to ask. Who's this given to? And then on what's the basis for it? 
Um, so who's, who's he talking to? Everyone likes to quote that verse, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for good and not for harm. That's speaking to Israel in the Babylonian captivity, promising them he'll bring them back to the land. As, as nice as that is for us to put in our fridges, it, you, know, you want to be like, so tell me about your time in Babylon. You know? And now you can make the case that that applies through, and certainly we can say God's heart for his people in Babylon demonstrates his love and his compassion, and it reminds us of his love and compassion for us. But that promise was given to a very specific people in a very specific historic context that we do not share. Um, so that'd be my first question, Elsa. Who's this to? And under what covenant? Under what covenant? So when you read through the law of Moses, what you're mostly dealing with is the Sinai covenant. You're mostly dealing with the law, right? Are we under the law? No. Okay, Christians, are we under the law? Oh, thank you. Then, then the promises in the law do not directly apply to us. Now, let me be clear what I'm saying. I'm not saying ignore those parts of the Bible. The law and the prophets, according to Jesus, also serve a prophetic function. They prophesied until John. So even though I don't read Leviticus to figure out how to dress and how to plow my fields, because I'm not under the law, all of that points to, anticipates, and prepares me for Christ and the new covenant. So it's not that the law is something we don't need to read anymore, but I don't go to the law to figure out what I can eat. I don't go to the law to figure out how to do my hair. I don't go to the law to figure out how to offer my sacrifices. I'm not under the law. The law, it gets back to that um, notion of like, we're not under the jurisdiction of, um, of Missouri law. As much as there may be similarities between Iowa law and Missouri law, if I break the law, someone has to cite the, the Iowa code to indict me. Even if the Iowa code and the Missouri code are 100% identical about, say, a speeding offense, I'm not under, I'm not under the jurisdiction of the Missouri law. We're into the law of Christ. According, yeah, go to go to First Corinthians nine. And, actually, go to Romans seven again, because that no is too slow. We got to we got to repeat this. Romans seven. Um, so there's two ways people deal with the law of Moses in, in this problem of what do we do with the biggest part of our Bible. Um, <laughs> one answer is, that's very popular. Very popular. Good godly men do this. I, I, I don't follow suit. Is to say the law divides up into three parts. Civil, ceremonial, and moral. And so, under this understanding, um, and go to Romans 7, under this understanding, the law is three sections. There's the civil. Israel is a nation. Things like having parapets around your roof and land divisions and things like that. And they are done away with when God set aside Israel as, as a people for a time. They're done away with, so that, that doesn't apply. And the ceremonial law is fulfilled in Christ, so we don't offer sacrifices anymore because his sacrifice. But what's left is the moral law. And under this view, the Ten Commandments then would really be the center of the moral law, the center of the law covenant. Those abide. We are under the moral law of the Old Testament. I would disagree. Not that, now it's admitted that the moral law of the Old Testament is that part of the law which most looks like and most at times is identical to the things Jesus is saying. Absolutely. There are things in the moral law of the Old Covenant that we still obey. I'm just saying not because it's in the Mosaic law, but because Jesus and his apostles said it. So here's the example. 1 Corinthians 7. Romans. Wow. My brain is scrambled. I apologize. Do you not know, brothers, from speaking to those who know the law, the law is binding on a person as long as he lives. And you use the example of if your wife dies, you're free to marry someone else. 
Likewise, brothers, verse 4, you also died to the law um, through the body of Christ so that you might belong to another, to him who's been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit to God. For all we are living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law, we're at work in our members to bear fruit for death. So we died to the law. You died to the law. Well, what law is he talking about? Is he just talking about the moral, the ceremonial? Let's jump on down to verse 7. What shall I say then? Is the law sin? By no means. If, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, do not covet. What's he quoting? Don't covet. The example, get this, the example that Paul cites of what we died to is in the Ten Commandments. You can't, I don't think you can argue. When Paul says we died to the law, he just means the civil and ceremonial law. He means the law. I'd also argue that unless you show up to the text with this tripartite division, the law divides them into three pieces, you will never see it in the text. You've got to bring that assumption to the text. First person to standardize this, the church has been using that approach for a long time, but Thomas Aquinas was the first guy to lay it out. And Jesus and his apostles know nothing of civil ceremonial. Now, Jesus can talk about the light and the heavy. In your Bibles, the greatest commandment is literally the heaviest commandment, the lightest commandment. So Jesus and the apostles can meaningfully talk about the light and the heavy in the law. But James, to break one part of the law, you break all of it, right? My understanding of the law is it's, it's, it's an enforced in total, in toto. Um, I'm not talking about Wizard of Oz. The law is... The law is on or off. Now go to 1 Corinthians 9. And this is a huge topic, and many, many good guys would disagree with me on this. But um, if you want to know guys who I got this from, guys like D.A. Carson, Douglas Moo, some other folks, um, really sold me on this. Um, and it's not going to make a huge difference in how you live your Christian life. It will make a big difference in how you read your Bible. So if you wonder what the significance of this is. because the, Anyway, so Paul is describing his, how he witnesses to others. For though I'm free from all, verse 19, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law that I might win those under the law. So he's not under the law, but when he goes and evangelizes Jews, he uh, doesn't eat ham. And he has, uh, he has Timothy circumcised. You know, that's, gotta, that's, that's commitment right there on Timothy's part. Um, and Paul does that, but he says, I'm not under the law. But then that he says to those not under the law, Verse 21, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. So Paul sees himself under legal authority. He sees himself under a law. It's not the law of Moses. It's the law of Christ. So Paul's insisting on the one hand, I'm not under Moses and I'm not free from law. I'm under the law of Christ. And Galatians 6, if any of you um, stumble, if any of your brothers stumbles, you are spiritual restore such a one in... Oh, good grief. If you can't quote it, go there. Sorry. Um, that, that reference to the law of Christ again comes up in Galatians 6. Brothers, if any of you is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch to yourselves, lest you be tempted, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. 
So, so I would say basically, Elsa, this, this is a long answer to your question. Sorry, it's a big question. Is we are not under the law. I, I, to me, I found it impossible and very tedious to sort through the law of Moses which parts remain for me and which parts don't. It does not divide up evenly. It does not have nice little interior divisions. Commands against mixing fabrics are right against commands of sexual purity. You know, it is, if, unless you show up going, there's three types of law, you're not going to see it there. So there's plenty of things in the law of Moses that are copied word for word into the law of Christ. Absolutely. The example I use is the law of Moses prepares us for the law of Christ. The law of Moses is like a, a model airplane. So when you go to the airport and you see the real thing, that's, that's, yes, I was prepared for this. So Jesus, this, but this then is going to radically change how you read the Sermon on the Mount. Because the classic Reformed Puritan understanding is that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is unpacking the law, the true meaning, the deep, full meaning of the law. The problem with that understanding is when Jesus says, don't think I've come to abolish the law, but to fulfill them, consistently through Matthew's gospel, fulfill, plurao, means prophetic fulfillment. In other words, Jesus does not say, don't think I came to abolish the law and the prophets, I came to establish them, deepen them, broaden them, tell you what they really mean. Don't think I came to abolish, I came to fulfill. I came to preach the prophetic fulfillment a few chapters later, the law and the prophets prophesied, and there's a predictive element. So this explains then how Jesus can change some things the law says, because Jesus forbids oath-making, right, in the Sermon on the Mount? Does Deuteronomy forbid oath-making? It tells you how to make them. You don't swear by the gold. You don't swear by your head or your hair. You swear by the Lord your God. He is your oath. So Deuteronomy tells you how to make oaths. And then along comes one who says, in my kingdom, in my ethic, for those who recognize me as their Lord, uh, I want everything you say to be at oath strength. So that if you even say, here's my oath, you're indicting every other thing you said. You see how that's consistent with? How, how you get the seriousness God takes honesty and oath-making in Deuteronomy, and then Jesus comes along, and it's the fulfillment of that ethic. Um, again, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus never says, you've heard it said, but it is written. What does Jesus say? You've heard it said, but I tell you. What's the locus of authority in the Sermon on the Mount? Is it the text of the Bible? No, it's Messiah, King Jesus. Again and again and again, you've heard it said, I tell you. And Jesus has no problem in other places going, you've heard it said, it's written. It is written. This is Jesus' law. This is his, his, his ethic. This is what he demands of his followers. And what he's saying is it's completely consistent with and it's the complete fulfillment of the Mosaic law. Yes, Well, there's all types of law. There's the law of sin and death in Moses. In Rome, you're quoting Romans 2. The Gentiles do not have the law. Show the work of the law. It's the work. There's, it's an evidence of the law. It's a, it's, there's parts of the law. I mean, okay, hold on. We've got 10 minutes. We can do this. Okay. Okay. Let's go to Romans 2. Verse 14. When the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. So, so that's another thing. The Gentiles are not under the law, but they are under this law to themselves. A standard, something that's going to hold them accountable to themselves. Um, even though they do not have the law, they show not the laws written on their hearts, the work of the law. There's some line of continuity. There's something similar to the law on their hearts. It's not the law on their hearts. It's the work of the law on their hearts. 
some sort of evidence of these. And there's certain aspects of the law that we would call the moral law that are most common that go across into the law of Christ. And those things are on their hearts. But for those who want to say the law is on your heart, they've got to then argue that unbelievers intuitively know to keep the Sabbath, which I think is tricky to argue. I think any of the other commandments of the, of the Ten, we can show, yeah, most people know that. So the Ten Commandments generally are the centerpiece of that which is most unchanging from the law of Moses to the law of Christ. Fair enough. But that's where people get stuck up on the Sabbath. And that's why you've got Sabbatarian Christians. Because if you start with the assumption that the Mosaic Law, the Decalogue, the Ten, the Ten Commandments, is the unchanging heart of the unchanging and eternal moral law, then by definition it doesn't change. So when Jesus only repeats nine of the ten in his ethic, well, of course, you're, you've got to assume that one's there too. So even when Colossians, Paul talks about being freed from observing Sabbaths, and the author of Hebrew, that must be high Sabbaths or ceremonial Sabbaths or special Sabbaths, because of course the law doesn't change. And then you get to Hebrews 4, and there remains a Sabbath for the people of God, for whoever has ceased from his work has entered into his rest. That's talking about something else too, because we start with the assumption the Ten Commandments don't change. I'm not saying they change. We're not under the Ten Commandments. As much as the Ten Commandments come over the least changed, they come over into the law of Christ almost identical. One of them does change. We find out that even one of the Ten Commandments is eschatologically minded. The Sabbath is pointing towards us resting from our works in Christ. Right? So it's prophetic. It predicts. Yes. Even embedded in the Ten Commandments is that. Yes, Elsa. Okay. I don't use the Ten Commandments. I don't use the Ten Commandments. Or if, well, if I do, I won't go, what I want to be clear is I don't want to make it sound like they're under the Ten Commandments. They're under the law of their conscience. So what I'll say is, a lot of people recognize the Ten Commandments as a good example of what's right and wrong. Do you mind if we go through it? But I'm not trying to say, when when an unbeliever stands before God, he will not bust down Exodus 20. According to Romans 2, he'll bust out the log of his conscience. Here's all the times your conscience convicted you and you didn't do it. Here's all the times you knew it was wrong and did it anyway. So there's the, but he's not going to bust out Moses. When the Gentiles who do not have the law will not be, will be judged apart from the law. They'll not be judged under the law. They're judged because they're a law to themselves. They're a separate standard. And that, that's what he says in Romans 2. Um, when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their own conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. So they're not under the Mosaic Law. Although the Mosaic Law, the Ten Commandments in particular, is a wonderful reflection of the types of things that are on their heart. But they're not accountable to the tablets that Moses brought down from Sinai. They're accountable to what they know. Does that that distinction make sense? And you say, well, they're the same thing. This gets back again to how you read your Bible, not as much ethically what you're doing. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yes, you're rejecting what you already know to be true. God has told you things, and you refuse to believe them. Yes. That's, well, it's both. Keep going in Romans 2. Okay, Elsa said, you're not going, pause. 
Yes. Elsa's, here's what I want to make sure you're not saying, Elsa. I've heard people say, um, every sin's forgiven except the sin of unbelief. Well, if that's the case, then I'm in trouble because rejecting Christ, and that's the rejecting Christ's sin. And there's a church my family went to in New Hampshire that split over this. It was, it was a weird way of trying to deal with something. I won't get into all of it. But they basically were dealing with the whole limited, unlimited atonement issue. Did Jesus die for everyone's sins? Or, and their answer is not the right answer. Whatever answer you take, don't take this one. Jesus paid for everyone's sin except the sin of rejecting him. Well, the problem is we've all committed that sin, so then that means we have unforgiven sin. The second problem is look at, look at Romans. Keep going. Go back in Romans 2. Um, okay, Romans 2. Verse 6. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory, honor, and mortality, he'll give eternal life. Now, people trip up over this. Is this salvation by works? There is a legitimate offer of salvation by works on the table. Anyone here who wants to be sinless, you don't need a gospel. That's all Paul's saying is it's not that the dice aren't loaded. Hey, you want to come up and say, I've kept your law like Jesus did. You get glory, honor, and eternal life. But... For those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. Jew first and also the Greek. So I'd say one of the greatest sins we commit is rejecting Jesus. But go to, go to Revelation in 20, where the books of the dead are open, and each one is judged by what they did. And the Bible is clear. We are judged by our works. And the unbeliever who's not under the Mosaic law will be judged for what they knew and not what they didn't know. The problem is we know plenty to damn us 52 ways to Sunday. Every time our conscience, according to Paul, convicts us and excuses us, we know, right? Look at, don't go to Revelation, Romans 2.1. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges from passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. You know, that, that's, this, that, when I go out and witness, I usually actually use these arguments from Romans. Because Paul's talking about what people know apart from Scripture. So I don't need to establish the credibility of Scripture to make these arguments, because Paul's saying they already know them intuitively. So I'll say, let me tell you what the Bible says. The Bible says that you're, you're, you, you stand condemned because not only do you know right and wrong, has your, have you ever done something and felt bad about it? Yeah. Then you know it's wrong. Let me ask you another question. Has someone ever done the same thing to you and you get angry at them? You ever hit someone? You ever yelled at someone? Yeah. That shows not only do you know right and wrong, you know that wrong brings punishment because you've metered out punishment. Now, that's what God says you already know. Now, do the math. You've done wrong to God. What will he do to you? Will he be more righteous or less righteous than you? Right. And, oh, and, and that's now. Let me tell you what the Bible says about that problem because the Bible assumes we have enough information to know we're in trouble. In fact, Alyssa, you remember this. Four excuses. We'll close with this. Junior high, final exam. You and Sarah can do this together. Um, here we go. Romans 1 to 3 gives four answers to four objections. What's the first objection the unbeliever has? I didn't know there was a God. What's the answer to that? Nature, creation. That's Romans 1, 18 through 24. Yeah, you do. What's the next objection? I'm asking my junior hires, Lee. Well, my former junior hires. You, you are not one of my former junior hires, Lee. Oh, come on now. 
Wow, this is disappointing. The plot thin. The plot thins. How was I to know right and wrong? What's the answer? Boom. Well, surely I didn't, okay, I, I knew there's a God, and I knew there's right and wrong. I didn't know judgment was coming. I would have lived differently if I knew judgment was coming. What's the answer to that one? You, you judge other people. Sure you do. Sure you do. You intuitively know it. Every time you, when you stand before God, you know, I didn't know judgment was coming. If only I'd known there was judgment. Here's every example of you judging someone in your heart, pouring out your wrath on them. You, you got it. And finally, my, well, maybe my good works won't weigh my bad works, and that's what he says in three. No one's justified by law. The law doesn't justify. Remember all my examples about, has anyone here not got a speeding ticket for a year? Does the DMV send you a thank you note or in a check? No, because law is not made to justify, it only condemns. And we can never plead obedience to part A of the law as our excuse or defense for disobedience to part B. It doesn't work that way. We don't let murderers go free because they didn't kidnap, right? Okay. We took a long way about. So, Elsa, reeling it back in. <laughs> when you read the Bible, figure out what covenant, who it's said to, and what covenant's under. If it's a covenant we participate in, like the New Covenant, then absolutely, even in the Old Testament, as the New Test- Old Testament speaks of the New Covenant, we are participants in the New Covenant. That's us. But the Mosaic Law was to Israel, and we know that in the Millennial Kingdom, they'll be, they'll be celebrating the Feast of Booze, and it's going to be back up and running. Um, and so I would say that no, that doesn't, those are not commands and promises that directly apply to us. We will live to see their fulfillment. We'll be living in the kingdom alongside of Israel. We'll be resurrected. So it's there for our instruction. It's good for us. We can see how things move across into the law of Christ. But no, I just say the law in total. Your only other option is to divide it up. And I'll close by giving you the account of what really stumbled me across this. I was in, um, see if I can say this politely or delicately. I was doing premarital and there's a prohibition in Leviticus that's also repeated in Ezekiel about um, a man and his wife getting together during certain times of the month. And it says, don't do it. That's, okay, it's a little more explicit in Leviticus and in Ezekiel, but I'll say it that way. And I was doing premarital, and the guy asked me if that was enforced. Is that, is that part? We were, all of us, assuming that three-part division of the law. Okay? I said, I don't know. Is that under ceremonial or is that under moral? So we went and looked it up, and it's sitting in Leviticus next to like bestiality, homosexuality, adultery, and fornication. It's in that group. It's in the group of sexual sins. The man is not to do this. And um, well, that kind of looks moral. Then we had to discover, what's immoral about that? What's fundamentally, I mean, why, what, what would the sin be other than just not obeying? You know, what, what's, what's the corruption or the perversion? And then we started thinking, well, maybe it's ceremonial because the ceremonial law had to do with the sacrifices and the lives and the blood and offering blood. Maybe that's the reason. And what we were at was that this, we had no idea, no sure way of deciding which category to put that command into. And I think there's a lot of examples just like that where good luck finding out which, which of the three pieces to put that into. And that'll really trouble people's consciences. Now that will show up. Everything shows up in the law of Christ. Some things show up in the law of Christ looking very different. Like, the, say, the sacrificial system is shown up in the finished once and for all sacrifice of Jesus. But everything will show up, but it's not like it's not going to show up. There's going to be some fulfillment. The model airplane, everything in the model airplane has its fulfillment in the real airplane. But you got to see, you got to do your math and cross it across the covenant to see how it shows up. So I would simply say you're not under that law. So you can look and see if what, what restrictions there are in the new covenant, but um, I, I, I'm not, whatever it shows up as, I think it shows up a little different. 
And so my answer would be, you know, that's not a law that we are under. But otherwise, you get this tough, difficult job of parsing everything out and putting everything into three buckets. And there's some tough cases, some really tough cases. And we have no model of the New Testament showing us that three-part division. Anyway, we're over time. It's Labor Day weekend. You guys have been very patient. Next, same bat time, same bat channel next week. Thank you.